Internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives. And Andy, I this episode comes out in what, like June? Early June? Uh, Late May? Mid May? Uh, first week of June. Okay. Um, for reference, we are recording this in on April the 21st. It is the day after 420. It is the day after the... Bare minimum uh, modicum of justice was served. Uh, yes, Derek Chauvin was convicted. Um, and like, same day, a f- couple people died. Like, a, a 15-year-old girl was shot in Columbus. Like, the world's still very much on fire. Um, my beautiful nephew turned four years old yesterday. Uh, hey Max, I know you listen to it sometimes. My sister told me when I called yesterday that, uh, I sometimes get too close to the microphone and I sound distorted. So, um, love you, sis. I appreciate the support. A problem nobody Um, on this podcast has ever been able to relate to. (laughs) (laughs) It's your fault for getting me the nice microphone. Um, but something else happened yesterday, and by the point time that this comes out, it'll be, you know, not so fresh for everybody, but it's still very fresh for for me, and I think for us, it's it's a, it's a topic that's near and dear to the show, because we did an entire love segment, you did, on Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell. Jim Steinman passed away yesterday. Yeah. And I kind of want to take the douchebag buffer to talk about him a little bit. Like, it, it's, it's, I'm not going to do a full-on love segment about Steinman. Um, I probably could, uh, but I don't think I will. We already did Bat Out of Hell, and that's a good, you know, large chunk of his catalog that uh, I, I give a huge shit about. But, you know, I think he was in his 70s. Um, I don't think he was ever a picture of health, but one of the, like, truly great American songwriters of the last half of the 20th century passed away. Uh, maybe the entire 20th century. Uh, certainly of rock and pop as a genres. And I, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. I, I, yeah, yeah. I think we would be remiss not to for all the reasons you brought up. But, you know, for you and I just personally, Steinman's work, be it with Meatloaf or Bonnie Tyler or Air Supply, it, the, the dude was absolutely amazing and phenomenal. So no, I, I got no objection to that. Yeah. So, um, you know, for those of you who don't know, Steinman, Jim Steinman was a composer. He was, um, he did a little bit of stage acting. He was a playwright, wrote musicals, but primarily he's best known as a producer and songwriter. Um, the things he's obviously best known for, his big hits are obviously working with Meatloaf on the first two Bad Out of Hell albums, and a little bit on the third, though that was mostly Desmond Child. Um, working with Bonnie Tyler, um, if you know the song Total Eclipse of the Heart, um, and you do, like, if you are (laughs) of the English, if you are of the English-speaking world, you know Total Eclipse of the Heart. Um, the best song written about vampires ever. Because he totally wrote that for a vampire musical. The man was weird. Um, and also some really great Celine Dion, some, some great Celine Dion music. Like, it, 
he produced um, All Coming Back to Me Now, which I believe was a cover for Celine Dion. Yes. Meatloaf would also re-record it, but that is a that is a Steinman song. And oh Celine Dion's version of that song. I, I that's that's probably my favorite Celine Dion song. I'm pretty sure. Like it's either that or all by myself. But just just masterful. He also has a couple songs on the Footloose soundtrack, and we talked about Footloose on this show. So Steinman has kind of had this weird shadow presence on this podcast for a while now. Yeah, and I mean, we talked so much on the Desmond Childs episode and, um, you know, the Bad Out of Hell episode. Just the, the, the man is influential, and the idea of composers being the unseen... Um, controllers of of so much music like i you you mentioned he's maybe the greatest composer of the 20th century and i would agree with that the only person i could maybe hold up is again you know childs but steinman was steinman was like the perfect mixture between leather biker rock star and like Richard Bach, original, like classical composer. I think the guy like basically single-handedly invented Wagnerian rock, which yeah. is a I mean, subgenre. <laughs> I mean, he famously talked about with Bat Out of Hell, like people telling him no one's going to listen to the stuff. He's like, no one's going to listen to eight, nine minute Wagnerian rock and roll songs about motorcycle crashes and high school lust and uh, with with like weird like theatery breakdowns and giant huge harmonies and just and he's like no one's gonna listen to that stuff okay <laughs> okay and then he does it like he made it happen we we've you know we've listened to uh, every song we just named uh, is I think the shortest one is maybe like six and a half minutes long. Like Steinman songs are long. They take so much out of their performers. They demand. The thing I love about Steinman music is it demands so much of both the artist and the audience. Like they refuse to, a, you cannot do a Steinman song if you're mediocre. You and, and there are karaoke bars across this country that prove that. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, I I think it's not unfair to say that Steinman's heyday had come and gone. I think we are on the very closing end of the generation that like will say his name with reverence, you know, people younger and younger, there's, there's different composers, even there's different music producers to like get fascinated and interested by, but he laid so much influential stuff and he wasn't the only one doing it, but he was one of the first people doing it. Uh, just this perfect mix of like, this is what happens when you give a theater kid rock star money. And that warms my heart straight up. And like, that's, he wrote musicals and he wrote rock songs that 
could have been numbers in musicals, especially the way they were structured. Like, you know, I was writing about this a little bit online. Like, Steinman had great humor. You know, on a hot summer night, will you offer your throat to the wolf with the red roses? Will he offer me his jaws? Will he offer me his hunger? Will he offer me his mouth? And does he love me? Yes, 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 yes. Yes. I bet you say that to all the boys. Like, come on, man! That's... (laughs) That is on one of the greatest selling albums of all time. There ain't no coup de ville hiding at the bottom of a Cracker Jack box. Like, how the, the, the depth, the intelligence of those lyrics. And that's to say nothing about him as a piano player. Bruce Dickinson called him the, beater, the beaten, battered, bloody fingers behind Meatloaf. Yeah. I'm going to miss him. I am too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As soon as we saw it, I think we, we, I, I showed you, or no, you showed me, um, and I basically said, "Well, I know what I'm listening to for the rest of the day." Yeah, like I've I've been bumping Celine Dion and Meatloaf and Bonnie Tyler like this whole time. Like, and there's there are playlists of his stuff on Spotify. Like. Do yourself a favor. Check out if you're if you're not familiar with Jim Steinman. Maybe you skip around the episodes, or maybe you don't follow up on stuff. Do yourself a favor. Check out Jim Steinman. Like, look for his stuff on YouTube. He has a solo album of like his own that he performed on. It sucks. Don't bother with it. <laughs> um, I listened to like two songs of it and was like, this sucks. I, I want you to keep writing for other people. Like he was one of these people who just honestly his best work was writing for other people, and he was so good at that and i i'm just you know he was in his 70s no no one's expecting these folks to live forever but it's just sad man you know dmx passed not that long ago he was in his 50s that one was a bigger surprise but it's just steinman i'm he was great and we you know he apropos of nothing we talked to him about him on this podcast multiple times and you know, <laughs> we, I can't we say that it's that our curse. Most of our loves. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and you know, we never did a love segment on him. Uh, and again, I'm not sure there's enough there. We've certainly talked about him via other stuff, but like, there is a dearth of great songwriters nowadays and that's not to say bad songs are written. I'm that's to say I've and I've talked about this on the show. Most most music is written by the same people, like Thundercat is doing all of the hip-hop beats. Max Martin writes all the pop songs, especially now that Dr. Luke isn't writing them with him. Like, it's 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 the same people time and again. And Steinman is of an era of songwriter, and, you know, he's he's worth keeping in your heart, truly. His, his stuff was great. He challenged people, and I think that he made for better music. better Better music listeners, too. I completely agree. Yeah, so rest in peace, Jim Steinman. There's a very cheesy line about a motorcycle either driving up to heaven or down to hell, and I don't I don't know which one to make, so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, um, and yeah, so welcome to Love Hate Relationship. Um, aside from the times when we take a moment to commemorate our heroes, 
normally what we do on this podcast is take uh, a topic that one of us loves and break it down. Then the other takes something they hate and we discuss that. And then we take your relationship questions and provide our perfectly unqualified advice for them. And Alex, this week you've got the love and appropriately, uh, it's another musical topic. It is. Like, I don't have enough of those, you know? Um, although it's funny, this is a musical topic, but also it's... um. Andy, it's the first time I think that I've talked about a YouTuber. Like, I've talked about a podcast. You've talked about a YouTuber or two. Yeah. But I think this is the first time I've talked about a YouTuber, and I feel so special. I'm very proud of you. (laughs) So... I know that I've uh, passingly referenced him on the show in the past, and I know that I've shown you a smattering of his videos, dear boy, uh, including contemporary jazz reharmonizations he did of Carly Rae Jepsen's Run Away With Me and Adele's Hello. Um, if you remember those, um, th- those were those were from uh, musician and YouTuber Adam Neely, who is my topic today. I'm going to ask you, Andy, and if any of you want to pause, uh, I'm going to put links to a ton of Neely's videos uh, in the show notes, including those first two. Those are going to be the first two that I link to other than his channel. Um, if you want to pause and listen to those just to get an idea of the work he does as a musician. Andy, I showed those to you forever ago. I don't know if you re-listened to them before we recorded here. I certainly didn't ask you to. But um, can I ask what your takeaways from those were? Or if they indeed stick out in your mind at all? So I won't lie, I super didn't. Um, mm-hmm. had, a, had a little bit of a, a packed day in the moments between getting these notes and, and sitting down to record. Um mm-hmm. But I, I I will say this because I I cannot speak to the songs. I don't quite remember them enough to say this. But just by and large, the the things you have shown me on YouTube have always been these really interesting, unique, like musical breakdown channels and people who explain and then recontextualize a song and help you understand why it is so interesting and sticks in your mind so much. And so I'm very interested and excited to dive into Adam Neely a little bit more today, but I mean, by and large, you've never shown me a YouTube video that was not fascinating from a music theory perspective. All right. I am here for that. And we're going to talk a little bit about music theory and I'm going to make it like kind of contentious. So (laughs) let's get into it. So for reference, the individual I'm talking about, Adam Michael Neely is a New York based bassist, composer and YouTuber. Uh, Born in 1988 to musician parents, his mother uh, in particular is a voice teacher and she appears in a number of his videos whenever he wants to discuss singing or anything like that. He's very like, I don't know about singing, but here's my mother who's been professionally teaching singing for like 40 years uh, and he'll get her on. It's great. Um, He himself studied bass and composition. Uh, at Berklee School of Music and Manhattan School of Music, respectively. He's got an undergraduate and a graduate degree with each of those. Uh, As a musician, he is a currently working musician, uh, or as much as he can be during, you know, when when pandemic is still doing what it's doing. Um, 
As a musician, he regularly performed with jazz acts like Shub Saran, the NY Chill Harmonic, um, the 8-Bit Big Band, uh, jazz indie brass band Aberdeen, who I highly recommend. They are fantastic. And his own project, which is a jazz Jazztronica EDM fusion group called Sungazer. They have a couple of EPs on Spotify as well. They're great. Um, presumably, he will continue to do all of these things uh, once live music in New York City is a normal thing again. Sure. Um, and, and I want to stop you just real quick off the bat. I think it is so fascinating that you can list off the acts that he has performed with and the like his accolades. It's it's not nothing that the man, you know, studied at Berkeley and the Manhattan School of Music. It's not nothing that he has all of these projects. I, I I'm pretty sure I've heard of Aberdeen, um, but you know, to be a working musician in New York pandemic or not is no small feat but he is most recognizably seen as a youtube personality yeah absolutely unless you are in the new york city jazz scene uh you're probably not gonna see him he's not famous he's not rich um he's definitely in he doesn't have a record deal like straight up he doesn't like all of his music he you know writes and produces himself and he records it himself with other New York based acts and he performs with these different groups. And I I don't know how it works with his income stream, how much of his income he gets from YouTube and how much he gets from performing. Um, I know for a fact, it's probably shifted during the pandemic sure. because he's talked about how YouTube has been a way for him to still continue to make a living while, while, touring and music and live performance haven't been a thing but like he so uh th this is to deviate from my notes for a second he'll do these gig these gig vlogs of different gigs that he does and he'll do stuff like um he attended he, like he was the bassist in the band for uh the i think like video game developers awards and it was just like, there's a band of like six people on a stage and they do like, and, and like when, when, you know, they announce that such and such developer has won this award, um, they'll play songs from the, from those video games to, as those people will like walk onto the stage to give their speech. He did a whole gig vlog cause he played bass in the band for the video game developers award ceremony. And that's just a gig he got paid to do. That is so damn cool, though. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, he just... And he just showed up. There was, like... There is the dude who's, like, the musical director of the show who, like, got all the sheet music, and he emailed him the PDFs of the sheet music, and he basically showed up with his bass guitar and his iPad and just did the did the show. And that was that. So, he, he is a working musician. Mm -hmm. And something that's really great about the content he puts out is, like, explaining some of the both cool and not-so-cool aspects of being a working musician. Like, he has a whole thing. He, he he works with a wedding band that just, like, does weddings around the New York area. And he's—if you've ever heard me talk about, like, how hard it is to be in a wedding band— 
and you've ever heard me reference um, Uptown Funk, I get that directly from him because he's talked about how ever since Uptown Funk came out, he hasn't done a single wedding gig where he hasn't had to play fucking Uptown Funk. So much so he's very, very bored of it. But that's what it is to be a working musician who does wedding gigs. And wedding gigs actually pay, you know? The last great bastion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, the band I'm in is trying to get in on the wedding scene. And I'm the first one to tell the entire band, like, you know that means we're going to have to play Uptown Funk, right? Like, people who hire wedding bands want to hear Uptown Funk. I don't know why. It just works that way. They want Uptown Funk and Don't Stop Believing. Can't tell you why. Yeah. Uh, but um, so to get back to Adam Neely, um, other than being a working musician, he does his YouTube channel. And that's where I know him from. That's where I got into his music. That's where that's the thing I follow. Like I check up on his videos every week. Um, his YouTube channel is mainly made up of music history and theory lessons, uh, mostly concerning his his jazz specialty. He is primarily a jazz musician, though he certainly does dabble in other things. Uh, he does Q&As with listeners, um, these Instagram Q&As, people send him questions. He has a whole series called uh, How to Not Suck at Music, where he has people send him, like, one-minute clips of their songs, and he explains, like, what works, what they could do differently, how to make it better. Um, he does these gig and production vlogs. Um, for those two um, songs that I mentioned at the top, he also has these, like, 15, 20-minute videos that explain how he did the reharmonization and how he recorded it and who he's recording with and showing clips from the studio and all of this stuff. And then he does video essays on various musical subjects. So that's kind of his YouTube channel. And it is very uniquely my shit. <laughs> so I'm very, very aware that on, on the surface, this dude scratches some of my very, very particular niches as a YouTube consumer. Like... I don't watch general YouTube. I can't. I, I just, I don't understand it. Um, I've had conversations with you uh, and with and with your wife, Mariah, about, like, whatever the YouTube drama of the day is, whether it's with, what's his name, James Charles, or who is the other, or Jeffrey, Jeffrey Star, Star, or whoever. Shane Dawson, yeah. Yeah, or, yeah, what's his name, um, the dude who's, um, I'm going to guess Jake Paul before hearing anything else. <laughs> I mean, I could say the Paul brothers. I, I don't really know much of anything about that. I, apparently one of them's doing exhibition boxing matches and they're clearly rigged. Um, anyway, I don't know general YouTube. I have very niche YouTube. And this dude is definitely my niche. He's a bass player. Very proudly so. He is hella DIY. Jazz and orchestral music oriented, which you know is my shit. Um... But he still has a profound amount of respect for other genres. And, and, and like, obviously, I'm drawn to this kind of content. And there's something kind of deeper that I really wanted to discuss with doing this topic. And that is his reverence and understanding of his place as a music educator. Okay. My very specific example of this, and I don't remember if I told you about this or not, just in a conversation. I don't think so. Um, but about seven months ago, uh, I guess for all of you, um, about eight and a half months ago, when you're hearing this, um, Neely released a video essay which accompanied an academic paper he co-wrote 
which detailed the thesis that music theory as a concept is racist. Hmm. Before I continue, Andy, I'm assuming you ha- have you read ahead my notes yet? I mean, read ahead, skimmed, but not uh, not looked at the video or anything. Okay, what is your initial thought when I tell you the idea that music theory as a concept is racist? My thought, I, I remember our conversation talking about the blues and the origin of the blues and the origin of jazz and the idea of music theory is a very music theory is something you begin to talk about in a university classroom and like you have so much time on your hands that you decide you're going to devote it to breaking down how these things work versus maybe you're a little bit more of a working class musician um, or somebody who doesn't have the luxury of time to think about that in such a way and you just play what you play and the idea mm-hmm. of what i just said certainly sounds racist <laughs> but also like the idea of we're going to break down and analyze this thing is depending on who's doing the breaking it down yeah i can see very quickly how that's a slippery slope sure as, you know that's really not a bad like place to start from. Uh, that's not what the what the like video and the paper are concerned with. Okay, but that's a really good starting point, especially like I'm gonna assume that most of our audience, like you, Andy, doesn't give a shit about music theory. Like you don't you don't care what key a song is in. You know, if I if I say that something you know uses. Uh, a one four five minor six chord progression. You don't give a shit. You just care that you know it's one of the axis of awesome four chord songs. Like <laughs> it's it's and it's and that's fine. No one needs to care about this stuff. You really even professional musicians, by and large, a lot of them don't care about this stuff. But um, to kind of get into this topic. And not to get too weedy, especially considering that I'd be trying to distill a 45-minute essay and a full academic research paper down to a few minutes of discussion time right here. But the basis for the idea was that what we refer to as music theory, that course that's taught in high school and college, um, should more accurately be labeled the harmonic style of 18th century European musicians. There it is. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. This is partly because there are so many non-Western styles that don't clearly fall into the ideas taught in traditional theory. And also, because it's also a lot because, and I did not actually know this, the guy who wrote the first codifying texts of music theory in the early 20th century, Heinrich Schenker, was a bit of a proto-Nazi. Hence why so many of the composers he highlights as the greatest of all time, your Bachs, your <laughs> Beethovens, your Mozarts, uh-huh, uh-huh. were all Germans. Sure. You've ever wondered why so many like of the most important, quote-unquote, most famous, quote-unquote, composers of all time were Germans? 
It's because the dude who literally wrote the book, the first book on music theory, was a Nazi before there were actual Nazis. God damn it, Alex. <laughs> like, that just makes too much sense. And I say that in a bad way. <laughs> yeah. So, like, this is this is skipping a little bit forward, but, like, Okay, so a later essay that Neely does is talking about the Jimi Hendrix song, Hey Joe. Um, I've, I assume you're familiar with Hey Joe. You've at least heard it on, like, rock radio or something. Even if We've never talked about Jimi Hendrix. I don't know if you're a Jimi Hendrix fan. Uh, I prefer Machine Gun, but, uh, yeah, I'm sure I've heard Hey Joe. Okay, so Hey Joe is, if you were to Google right now, what key is Hey Joe in? Google will tell you it's in the key of G. The chords in Hey Joe, if you're going to analyze it from the perspective of traditional music theory, um, or again, as Neely would call it, um, the harmonic style of 18th century European musicians, it doesn't really work. It's kind of in G major, and then it like weirdly shifts to G minor. But that also doesn't make sense because like half of the chord progression is just an E chord, which does not make sense if it's in G, either G. Why would half the chord progression be a chord that is not the main chord of that key? And Neely argues it's not in G. It's not in G major or G minor. It doesn't modulate. It doesn't do that. It's in E. It's just not an E major or E minor. It's an E blues. And blues is a concept that, for as important as it is to contemporary music, we did a whole discussion about that. It doesn't work if you're analyzing the music in the harmonic style of 18th century European musicians. If you try and say that Hey Joe is in E major, no, it's not. There's a whole bunch of chords that are not in E major that are in that song. Same thing with E minor. But if you say it's in E blues, it works. Because blues as a concept, as a key, is something that has nothing to do with fucking German music of the 18th century. But it has a logic unto itself. So music theory, as it's taught, music theory, as the racist-ass concept that it's understood as, cannot properly explain one of the most foundational styles of music in the entire world. And that's... That's fascinating because, like, my initial thought is, okay, devil's advocate, benefit of the doubt, when, how do you say that? Schnier? Schnicker? Schenker. Schenker. Schenker, that's right. When Schenker uh, created it in 18th century Europe. um, Early 20th century, actually. It was like early 1900s. Uh, okay, this is getting closer to invalidating my point then. I was going to say, well, I mean, he came before blues and jazz was a 
ground was like became a foundational music genre because you know we had talked about how yeah. blues has kind of come and gone um yeah but well you know, at the time that he was studying music blues was just some shit that black people did in you know the american south there weren't really records of it that were circulating in germany at the time sure there was no sheet music for it and, and so you know i i want to give some devil's advocacy to that point but then my immediate follow-up thought is okay so why has no one updated it <laughs> Exactly, Andy. <laughs> and Neely caught so much shit for this video essay. And to his credit, he has consistently stuck to his guns on it. Hmm. You know, he's a white dude. Sure. And both before and after this essay and this paper, he spent tremendous amounts of energy and time in interviews, in in articles, and on his YouTube channel, emphasizing that as a musician who primarily plays jazz, he works in a black American art form. And if you read the comments under any video where he says that, there's a bunch of fucking fedoras trying to talk about white jazz artists. Like jazz isn't black music. And he will always, this is, again, this is a dude with degrees from Berkeley and Manhattan schools of music. And he is first to be up here going, no, this is black music. I play black music. I am a guest here. And it doesn't matter how many of you bought Dave Brubeck albums. This is black music. And I admire that. Yeah, I mean, there's something there. There's something to that for sure. There's something for standing your ground, when in this case, not standing your ground would be taking credit for something that is not yours to take credit for. Yeah, and and he and he does that. Like he spends time talking about things like how. Um, you know, in Western music, we have a thing called um, 12 tone equal temperament. There's 12 notes of a scale. If you ever look at a piano, it's the same 12 keys repeated over and over and over again in different octaves. And that is a very Western invention. There are other cultures. There's there's Japanese music. There are Asian music. There are South American music. There are, there are African music, West African music even, that... Don't bother with that. And he is very upfront to sit here and like analyze things from that traditional music theory standpoint that he was taught and that he is very good at and always say like, this is in 12 tone equal temperament. This is a very Western style. This is absolutely like this works in this way. And, you know, there are other cultures that do it differently. He will always be willing to call that out, you know? And he, and he does fun nitpicky stuff. You know, he did a, he did he did the video that largely informed my understanding of sea shanties uh, when I talked about that. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, like that was that was some stuff I got from him. Like he he talked about that, and that was a lot of my education on the subject. He also, um, are you familiar with uh, what Scotch snaps are? Uh, Andy, I cannot say that I am now. 
Okay, so if you listen to hip hop right now, Scotch Snaps are that like flow. Uh, I think very specifically of Cardi B's "I Like It Like That," which she's like, they they call me Cardi Barty banging body spiking muzzy hot tamale like that. Okay. Emph- that emphasized and like kind of laxer. I want you to touch uh, that little thing that's swinging in the back of my throat. Swing in the back of my throat. That's a triplet flow. It's it's similar. Um, but the Scotch snaps in particular are two syllables. Okay, got it, um, got it, got it. Yeah. Uh, that's why I say like, Cardi, Barty, Bangin', Barty, Spicy, Mommy, Hatta, Molly, like that that kind of deal. Um, that's called a Scotch snap. Um, it's actually very prominent <laughs> in certain forms of Scottish music, but uh, it has very deep West African roots. Okay. And Adam Neely did an entire video essay kind of explaining the West African roots of the Scotch snap. And, you know, Ariana Grande does that. Soulja Boy does that. Lizzo does that. Childish Gambino has that in songs. It's all over hip-hop. And he's just like, hey, did you know this thing that we're all probably kind of taking for granted in hip-hop actually has really deep roots in West African music? And it actually is also, like, made its way into Celtic music? Like, here's the whole history behind that. He talks about that. He talks about Indian music and Japanese music. and and But then he'll also do stuff on shit that matters a lot to me, like why the Star Spangled Banner sucks. He has a whole he has a whole video about how, like, the best arrangement of the Star Spangled Banner there ever was was Whitney Houston's. And that's because it didn't follow the original song at all. Or why, like, All By Myself by Celine Dion, like, the music theory behind why that song can make you cry. Like, he does shit like that. And I love that so much. Like, yeah, it's weedy. Yeah, it's super detailed. Yeah, it's shit most people probably aren't going to care about. But that he is doing this work that such that anyone who cares about music and composition and getting into those weeds, that he's doing that work and approaching it from a humble place, understanding he's a guest in so much of the music that he plays. Plus, he's a bass player. Like, I love that so much. I love that you love that. And, and yeah, because I, I kind of was keening in on that right before you said it. You mentioned how he's got a whole thing about how music theory is racist as a concept and what is being taught in schools has this horrible racist flaw to the logic. I would love to see Adam Neely design a music theory curriculum. And, you know, it sounds like piece by piece in his own time and the way that he wants to. That's kind of what he does in his YouTube offerings. And there's something really great to that. And, and, you know, talking about being a guest in this objective view of, no, listen, I, I have no biases about this. I'm just going to follow where the music style and where the music theory came from and see what influenced what and how something got over here. And like the the technology of language and song, I think a lot of people would be fascinated and interested in hearing more about that were he given the tentpole to make that the platform. Sure. He has stuff. He also has stuff about like AI music or like weird synthesizers that can make a bass guitar sound like a violin or just like 
weird technological aspects and things like just it's all this stuff that's at the forefront of concepts of music and i just fucking think it's great and i think i i want to i want to get as many people like over to him as possible there's there's people who do weedier stuff there you know uh rick beato is someone who i've referenced on the podcast before they've actually done some videos together he's an atlanta-based uh record producer who has a YouTube channel where he gets deep into music theory concepts as well as, like, production. Uh, I referenced him very heavily when I talked about uh, quantization uh, of drums. That one's one I'm not going to recommend to a lot of people because that just... That's shit that's over my head a lot of the time. Sure. Neely stuff is is accessible for, like, topics that some people care about. And if you have even the modest... The most modest interest in, you know contemporary jazz or in interesting concepts of music or you know any of the stuff that i've been talking about here like i highly recommend checking him out like i'm gonna put a bunch of links to his youtube channel in here um just some of my favorite videos um you know check him out look, take a look at him or if any if you talk to anyone who's interested in just like learning more music more, learning more about music um, feel free to recommend him. Like, I, I think that he doesn't get enough love. He's one of my favorite YouTubers, and I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk to talk about him. I think that's delightful. Thank you, as always. Yeah. Speaking of race situations, yeah, Andy. Yeah, I love the uh, uh, unintentional through line we, we developed for this one. <laughs> uh, give us the hate, dear boy. Yes. Yeah, so my hate this week is talking about the new Amazon Prime uh, horror TV show, Them. And Alex, I, I want to dip into metaphor a little bit for my question here. What do you think you would get if Jordan Peele's horror films Get Out and Us had a devil's three-way and American Horror Story was the Lucky Pierre? I I check it out. You know? That's fair, uh, you know? I, I, <laughs> you know, I haven't seen a single episode of Jordan of the Jordan Peele involved Twilight Zone. Um but I like a lot of what Jordan Peele is saying. Um I've never watched American Horror Story. It never seemed particularly interesting to me. Um and I'm kind of over Ryan Murphy. Um like I'm really over Ryan Murphy, so uh, I might do a hate on Ryan Murphy at some point. Anyway, um, but I checked something like that out, especially if Jordan Peele was involved. Foreshadowing. Yeah, I was about to say that's what Amazon Prime is really hoping the answer of most people would be. The answer to my metaphorical question is probably the show we're talking about, Them, which is the spanking brand new horror anthology being offered up right now. Uh, created by a guy named Little Marvin, and I've checked extensively, it is not Marvin Little, it is Little Marvin, with executive producer Lena Waithe. And it's... Who I like. Sure. And its whole conceit is to explore real-life racial injustice issues um, in this first season, at least. It's, it's looking at the second great migration of the 1950s with an added horror element poured all over everything in the whole show. And okay. I'm, we're going to talk about some stuff and, and we're doing something a little different because I think I hate this, 
but I'm not sure. And, and we're going to explain why, and I'll be looking to you to either validate or politely invalidate me here. Okay. I'm here for it. And, and so here's the deal. In all of the major advertising for them, it gives off these incredibly overt Jordan Peele vibes. You know, mm. the name of the show, them, it's such an obvious pun, us and them. When I first heard about it, I was like, oh shit, we're getting a Jordan Peele TV show. We're getting a TV show spinoff to us. Okay, I'm here for it. Strap me in. But if you were paying attention, you, dear listener, will realize Alex and I very carefully did not say that Jordan Peele created or produced this show. He is not attached in any way. And that hasn't stopped the name of the show, the poster, the trailer, the themes, any anything about this show from directly copying the popularity of, you know, somebody who has become a visionary horror director after two movies. <laughs> and it's that yep. copycat vibe that really starts to perk my ears up in a bad way because mm. I, I get anxious over the potential disingenuousness of the idea. The idea of this is popular quick Let's shit out a TV show that like apes this, but is not this. Let's make some racial horror because that's what's popular to do right now. You know, somebody uh, made a movie that was a horror thriller put through a racial thematic lens. That movie almost won an Oscar for best picture as a horror movie and was like the most insanely popular prevalent thing in the early 20th century from a filmmaking perspective, we need to make our own now, 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 go, go, go. The other thing that sets me off is the creative team. You know, it, it gives me pause. The showrunner is this guy named Little Marvin, who I have never heard of. And you do a little digging around Little Marvin's IMDb profile, and he has not done anything before writing this series, he's like done a couple of short films in various different capacities. And like, that's not to say this guy didn't have a brilliant story and just totally knocked it out of the park this time and was just waiting for the right moment. But I sure. kind of perk an eyebrow up when somebody has no experience in the industry and then all of a sudden is given an entire TV show. Um, you know, the other thing is you, you dig a little deeper and you go, okay, it's written by a man of color who directs the episodes out of the 10 episodes. Only one of them is directed by somebody of an African-American descent. And if you're going to split hairs and I'm, I'll tell you, Alex, I'm personally nervous to do this because I, I definitely don't want to get jingoistic here. Technically, that person is a uh, a woman who was born in Panama. Okay. Which yeah. does not make her African American. 
Like in in the sense that most people understand the word. Indeed. Yes. That's that's really all I, I wanna point out there. Out of that, like the the guy who directed the most episodes, four out of the ten, is a second gera- second generation com- Korean American guy. So I don't want to say mm. that it's a bunch of white dudes and one woman of color. There is another man of color. Mm. But so, like I said, I don't want to get jingoistic here. And I don't want to say that people have to tell stories based on their skin color. I think that's a really slippery slope to go down. But for a project like this, where the main conceit is the racial themes on display, the like this, this show is deeply, deeply rooted in what is the African-American experience. Yeah. Shouldn't they have gotten some black directors? Uh, I mean, there, there is such a thing as representation without participation without the actual populations being involved, you know, we've, I remember when we did our X-Men episode, we spent a bunch of time talking about the flaws with the mutant metaphor. Yeah. Because, you know, you can, you can talk about it being a metaphor for race or a metaphor for queerness, uh, or even to a certain extent, uh, a metaphor for disability. But, if you are making a metaphor of the thing without actual representation, there is something deeply problematic about that. And there is a long and storied history of, of non-black creators exploiting black stories. Right. And, you know, there's, there's a reason that you want Steven Spielberg to direct Schindler's List. There's a reason that you want Aaron Magruder working on the boondocks. So that that brings me to Lena Waithe, who, you know, is executive one of the executive producers for the show. I, I didn't look mm-hmm. into every executive producer, so I don't know if there are any other people of color, but Lena Waithe. But she's billed pretty heavily. Yeah, Lena Waithe is like billed above the title as executive producer. And I have no issue with Lena Waithe. I, I have no doubt of her credentials in this context. But I sit here and go, isn't it at least possible that she just threw a bunch of money at the show because somebody at Amazon told her it was going to be a surefire hit because did you hear of a movie called Get Out? I mean, it's possible. It's it's also possible that she, you know, maybe maybe she cut a deal on this. You know, maybe it's a like, oh, hey, if you throw your name on this, um, you know, we'll fund a project for you. That that kind of uh, quid pro quo is that kind of quid pro quo is pretty well known in the industry. Sure, I hadn't even considered that. Aziz Ansari's hit Netflix series Master of None is debuting its third season next month. It's been reported that the second season will not follow Dev Shaw, played by Ansari, and instead will feature Lena Waithe's supporting character, Denise, as the main protagonist. Yeah. I mean, I want to give the benefit of the doubt. It's also entirely possible that Lena Waithe is like, 
this is a project that I full heartedly believe in and sure. little, little Marvin's script is phenomenal and heart wrenching and will make people feel things. And, and I, I want to leave room for that. Yeah, it's possible. But I, um, Go ahead. I, and I was going to say, you know, you mentioned this dude not really having any real credits um, the first thing that makes me think of is the Duffer Brothers, um, the dudes behind Stranger Things. Before Stranger Things, um, I don't think they'd ever really worked on TV. I think they'd they'd written uh, a couple of kind of mid mid tier movies, like not low budget, not high budget, some like kind of middle of the road studio flicks. I know one of them had a Skarsgård brother in it. Um, I don't even remember which one. None of them did very well. Um, so they weren't like not of the industry, but they never did anything like Stranger Things before they did Stranger Things. And Stranger Things was great. It, it absolutely was. Yeah. And and so, you know, I don't I don't know what the deal is. You look up little Marvin, you know, I just looked him up on Wikipedia just to like check myself real time. Like, oh, shit, is this guy like an influential author or a poet or I don't know. Little Marvin doesn't have a Wikipedia. And again, you know, there's not to say that maybe this is just a guy who is getting his first shot and telling a story. And if so, good for him. But this really kind of makes me wonder if, a bunch of people are trying to do something that looks like it's the right thing for entirely the wrong reasons. If a, because it's hot shit, right? Exactly. Now. And, and so here's my, here's my coup d'etat. Here's, here's the, th- here's the thing. At time of recording, them has been out for just over a week and it has already gotten numerous critiques from articles like Vulture um, and uh, just uh, look up them like season one review. And you'll hear people talking about this where it is being called glorified racism, torture porn. Um, and so the argument people are making is, yeah, I watched the whole thing and this really comes across as just a lot of awful shit, a lot of racist shit happening to this African American family who are our protagonists. And like, there comes a point where it's overwhelming and I think it's just happening for the sake of it being like, holy shit, that was heavy and brutal. Um, mm-hmm. This comes to a head in the middle of the season. And I'm going to go ahead and spoil this because any article will. And I think it, it helps my point a little bit. Uh, in the middle of the season, there's an episode in which a black infant is murdered while his mother is being raped. In a later episode, a black couple is blinded with red hot pokers and then burned alive in a church by an all-white cult. The general consensus from these people who have watched the entire show, which admittedly I have not, is that it's these acts of real violence that are the most terrifying sequences. And you know, when I say real violence, I mean the kind of non-supernatural, non-capital-H horror movie 
acts of terror and violence. These are the the heaviest, worst things in the show. And there's room for that as a concept. There's room for you create something and you you bill it as a supernatural horror property and then the subversive the, the subversive twist of the TV show is that the worst things to happen are these real events. There's room for that. But given everything else I've talked about, I just get so worried that these are people coming up with the worst acts they can think of and coming up with things that they know will draw a visceral reaction from the audience just so that they can and just Mm -hmm. so that their show gets talked about. We're sitting here talking Mm -hmm. about it. Um, and so like, I want to put it to you, Alex, cause I can't put it to the listener. Am I making too big of a deal out of this? You know, I, as a white man, as a white guy, do I even have the ability and the right to critique a horror show written by a man of color about the black experience in the fifties with some horror sprinkled over it? Or am I making a fool of myself here? This is my take. And I and I give this take as a as a man of color, not a black man of color, but a man of color. Um who full throatedly say like I, I will always say that despite what the culture I was raised in would like me to espouse, I will always identify and sympathize more with a black American experience than I will a white anybody experience. Uh, And that comes from growing up as a person of color in the United States. Um, You as a white man, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's your place to condemn to condemn Mm. something like this. But you do have a place in discussing it, conversing about it, asking the questions and talking about it. Um, I'm a horror fan, just like you are. Uh, And something that I have always talked about in horror is, um, is that horror is the place where you are allowed to linger in what in what for other genres would be considered bad taste. Horror is the place where you can linger in gore, in cruelty, in you know, you know I I've I've said on this show I think more than once um the things in the things in movies and media that fuck with me, right? That I can't, I can't accept. That 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 just truly. I, I, mean, I, I say I can't accept. I've absolutely watched and read and consumed media that talks about this. The things that I can't that 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 truly hit me, that disturb me, are sexual assault and stuff to do with kids, with children. Those are the things that just like wreck me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I've referenced movies that have these things happen that just 
sit very uncomfortably for me. And I've watched this media. Um, fuck, I've written stories that involve these things. Um, actually, I've never written a story that involved a sexual assault. I've absolutely written stories that involved horrible things happening to kids. I've read it. Um, it's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so it's... And those are the things that disturb me. There are other people. I, I know people who can't deal with, you know, demon-related or exorcism-related things. Um, you yourself can't deal with certain types of body horror. Yeah. Um, horror is a place where you can explore those things that truly disturb. And I do think there's... I do think horror gets a certain pass to sit in those things. The question to me becomes one of purpose and one of lens. Um, I think The Passion is a bad movie. I don't think The Passion is a bad movie because I'm an atheist. I think The Passion is a bad movie because it uses violence and lingering, almost masturbatory shots of violence to elicit care for a subject in lieu of giving that subject characterization. Sure. And like, if, if you want to compare, if, if you want to take a scene that famously uses gore in lieu of characterization, but does it well, watch the opening of Saving Private Ryan. Where, you know, a man is literally scooping his guts back into himself and crying out for his mama. And you never see that character again. You didn't see him before that shot. But that's the point. He's a, he, he, he is, it doesn't linger on him longer than it needs to. The passion is masturbatory. And a snuff film. And I hate it. It's a bad movie. There are horror movies that linger in their violence in an exploitative fashion. And those are not necessarily good horror movies. Is horror allowed to do that more than, say, a war movie? I think so. Just like I think a war movie is allowed to do that a little bit more than, like, a drama that has a murder scene. But what's the point? What's the purpose? Right. You, you bring up purpose and that kind of leads into, I, I didn't have this in my notes, but this is my actual, like just about final talking point. I want to talk about why this bothers me. And it's because I, I do worry about the purpose. Um, maybe if, if the marketing didn't so clearly scream that we're trying to trick you into thinking Jordan Peele had something to do with this. I wouldn't be so caught on edge. But as it is, I guess I'm just... I I don't have time for and I don't want to see a piece of media that is shock, racism, torture porn do well. Because I don't think that that has... A, a beneficial place in society. Now, racial-based horror that 
has a very clear cut message. Yes, I absolutely have time for, I can't wait for Jordan Peele's next film at the same time. Uh, just two examples real quick. There's a movie called iron sky, which is a bad movie about space Nazis. But in that movie, okay. an African-American astronaut is captured by Nazis who live on the moon and they um, basically experiment on the guy and turn his hair straight and white and turn his skin like, you know, pale pink white and then put him back on Earth as a white man now. And he spends the rest of the movie trying to convince people he's actually this missing black astronaut and everyone thinks he's crazy. It's a bad movie, but that moment and the examination of it and the discussion you can have about it. I've got time for that. Um, that sounds like a mad TV sketch. It, it does. And it kind of plays out like one uh, 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 example from a movie. I actually do think is good beasts of no nation, which is a, a Netflix movie about child soldiers in Africa um, directed by a, third generation Japanese American man, but written by a Nigerian man. Um, Beast of No Nation is one of my favorite movies of the past 10 years. It's, it's amazing. And the exact same horrible shit I described in them. There's a scene in Beast of No Nation where a woman is raped and a child is like not killed on screen, but be, but vis visually hurt on screen. It's, it's very upsetting. It's a very tense, bad scene, but there's a purpose. The purpose of beasts of no nation is to paint this beautiful, grisly, horrible picture of how awful the child soldier epidemic is. Those things have purpose. Those things have meaning. I want to see, Maybe not the, the space Nazi one, but I want to see that kind of thoughtful media put into the world. Mr. Washington James, why are you so upset and so angry? Get lost! But I do not understand. I mean, we met you white. So my, my, my last note on it is this. You know, I, I was going to say food for thought. Um... As best I can tell, Lovecraft County, which is an HBO Max show that came out earlier last year, explores just about all of the same themes, but does them better. But you know what? You brought up the point that maybe it's not my place to critique, and so I'm, I'm not going to try and do that. I will say, what I've seen from them visually, it looks very good. It looks like it's very well acted. It looks like it will garner a positive response critically. Um, but so did the passion and it's a bad movie. Absolutely. So, you know, I've, I've laid my case dear listener. And the most I can say is I, I I'm worried about the motivations behind this TV show. Take that as you will. And, and choose your media however you damn well please, like you probably were going to before this. <laughs> sure. Uh, you know what? I and I am I am foundationally just like okay, watch watch what you're gonna watch, listen to what you're gonna listen to, but always think about what the point is, what the purpose, what the narrative purpose, what the monetary purpose is, especially right now as 
you know, I feel like we are in the midst of, I don't want to call it a new civil rights era. I, I absolutely refuse to call it that because frankly, there hasn't been enough progress to warrant that. Um, again, from the day that we're recording this, yesterday, Derek Chauvin was convicted of second and third degree murder and second degree manslaughter for the killing of George Floyd. And that is miraculous. But at the same, the same fucking day, a 15-year-old black girl called the police and was killed when they showed up on the scene. Yeah. And we, I don't want to call this a new era, but it is an era where attention is being paid differently than it has been, maybe ever. And this is America. We will commodify anything. Yeah. So beware the commodification of that. Yeah, I I wouldn't be shocked if there are several George Floyd, Derek Chauvin biopic projects in the works. Um, and just because it's important and, and needs to be said, uh, justice for Micaiah Bryant. Absolutely. fucking mm. So. Fuck yeah. All right. You want to get to our question? Let's. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Total shift. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So, um, I think you did the intro spiel, so shall I read the question? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Title of this is, um, I, 30-year-old male, gave my child the same name as my ex's 30-year-old female child, and people won't leave me alone. Okay, I know the title may look bad, but read the whole story before you cast judgment. I, 30-year-old male, used to be married to my high school sweetheart. He refers to them as Linda, 30-year-old female. She got pregnant when we were 20, and I didn't want to be a dad at the time, but knew that if I suggested she go to the clinic, I would be T.A. I don't know what that means. Um, The asshole? So I tried to suck it up. Okay. Um, Her parents pushed for marriage, and because my parents were embarrassed, they convinced me to do it. I was not happy with the wedding and felt like my life was over. The only joy that I could seem to find was finding out that my ex was going to have a girl, and she agreed that we could name her after my nana. She was my great-grandmother who died when I was 10, and I loved her very much. I tried to get excited, but I wasn't, not even when I held the baby for the first time. It just felt wrong, and I felt terrible. I kept waiting for this magic switch to go off that would make me love the little girl, but it didn't. I think maybe it was because I didn't love her mother. One day, a random woman showed up at our door and demanded to see her grandchild. I had no idea what she was talking about, but it later came out that my ex was cheating on me and that her child wasn't mine. My ex denied this, but when I suggested a DNA test, she got all defensive, but I did one anyway in secret. Her daughter was not mine. I showed her and our families the results and filed for divorce. Her parents tried to push for reconciliation, and when I refused, they threatened to use me for the money they spent for trade school for me. I think that's sue me for the money they spent on trade school for me. It makes more sense. Uh, but, there was, but there was nothing in writing stating that the money was conditional on my uh, marriage to their daughter. There's some typos in this. It sucked that I was on the hook for child support, but a part of me felt relieved that, for the most part, I could just walk away. The baby was only a year old when the divorce was finalized, so it's not like she was going to be, she was not going to, she was going to remember me anyway. 
Unfortunately, my ex's daughter got sick and died, and while I feel sad for the little life that was lost, I didn't attend the funeral. My parents still remained in contact with hers, so we always heard about each other, which didn't bother me, but I made it very clear I wanted nothing to do with her. I was able to rebuild my life and married my current wife, and she gave birth to our daughter. I still really wanted to use my Nana's name, and we compromised on it being the middle name. A week after the birth, my mother made a post about our daughter and showed her full name. The next day, I got blasted with messages about how awful I was to use that name and that my ex saw it and went off the deep end. I don't see uh, what I did as terrible because one, it was a middle name and not the first. Two, it was always important to me to have a daughter with that name and my ex's child wasn't mine. Three, it's not like my baby was born so soon after hers. And four, I told my wife everything and she was cool with it. So where do I go from here? Yeah. So, so name, um, this, this isn't going to mean anything to you, but anybody who's watched shameless, um, especially the first couple seasons of shameless will remember that something incredibly similar happened to a character in that show. So if you're okay, not getting the reference, I I'm going to put out lip Gallagher as the name. Lip Gallagher? Lip short for Philip Gallagher. Okay. Um, Lip Gallagher. Who are our other characters in this? Who's the um who's the ex? Oh god, I gotta remember her name now. She she doesn't last much longer than that season. <laughs> Hold on one second. The the mother is Joan Crawford. Or Joan Cusack. I love Joan Cusack. Um, hold on. I got this real quick. So we have Lip and his ex, Karen. Okay. Lip and Karen. What's the name of the kid? I rang the doorbell, but Ian had me wait out here. I don't think he likes me anymore. Think he ever liked you? Freddy. Freddy. Freddy Gallagher. Okay, so we got Lip, we got Karen, we got Freddy. Oh, okay. So... I read, do you want to take the first stab at this? Yeah, yeah, because this, you know, I'm going to expound on it, but the the direct answer to the question is, where do I go from here? Just keep living your life, my dude. Like, I can't really see what Lip has done wrong. And I can certainly understand the negative reaction here, but there's no, there's no law that says even if he had used his Nana's first name for both children, that that would uh, be something morally or legally wrong. He could have named his, his second child, Thundercat, Josephina, barbarianism and, the kid would get bullied, but there wouldn't be anything morally or legally wrong about it. Names are certainly uh, as important as you want to make them, but I, I think Lip did the right thing here by compromising. You know, so often we we talk on these these questions about how if two sides can come to a compromise, then there can be some meeting in the middle ground. Finding out that you're 
finding out that your child is not your child is is rough. And you know this mm. this story is a little bit of a roller coaster because at first I was like, ah, you know, uh, even if it's not yours, that's not a good reason to say, oh, that's why I don't love this kid. Um, you didn't love your first child because potentially you weren't ready to have your first child. And, you know, that makes the the tragic circumstances of their passing all the more tragic, but living in the now living in the moment. Um, I don't think lips done anything wrong. You know, it, it, he's made it clear. He really has no connection with his ex. It's unfortunate that he's getting doxxed on Facebook about this. Um, it sets a weird precedent where there's this connection and there's going to be resentment towards this little girl that the little girl has done nothing to warrant. Um, so I guess really that's my answer is, you know, I I was going to say do nothing, but I guess weigh the future consequences of the potential drama against your action. Is this all going to blow over in six months and, and nobody really talks about it? Or, you know, is your ex such a figure that for the rest of your daughter's life, there's going to be these nasty posts of, you know, this very upset person who, who knows what upsetting things they could say. I think, I think figuring out that question therein lies the answer for lip. I think to add on to that, uh, the, the, the angle I'm taking here is how to relate this back to relationships. Mm. And it's interesting because, um, lip, as far as the relationships in your life, you and you and your wife are cool. Um, I assume your you and your parents are cool. Um, your mother was the one who posted, you know, your daughter's name, uh, online. So it looks like they're cool. Um, you have no contact with your ex, uh, with Karen. You have no contact with Karen's parents, presumably your parents do. Um, but that's them and they're not really involving you in that. Um, so really the relationship in question is your relationship with people online. And I think you, Andy, make a very good point as to the question of, is this all going to blow over in six months? Your ex is very upset. Okay. I understand why she's upset. It is understandable. I think she has a perfect right to be upset. That's probably a very triggering, very upsetting experience for her to read from you this person who was an important figure in her life and in the life of her deceased daughter you know i hope you know if she were writing this in i'd be sitting here talking about like karen here you need to go to grief counseling you need to do this you need to do that um, you know, that's that you might be able to look at that as kind of a dick move by your ex, but also, you know, it is his great grandmother's name and it's something that mattered to him. Like if this were Karen talking about this, I'd have a lot of sympathy. I have sympathy for Karen. Sure. Here. Yeah. 
for you, I mean, I'm with you, Andy. I don't think Lip did something that is ultimately a little insensitive. Um, sure, but perfectly fair. I, I don't even need to attack this from a like legality or moral standpoint. I think it's perfectly okay that you wanted to name your child what you wanted to name her. Um, that there is the story behind that name uh, in terms of, you know, some legacy for you that she was named after someone that meant a lot to you. Um, I do think you should be aware that her name now also carries an additional story. Um, and that story could be traumatic for her. Or it could be a really interesting cocktail story she tells, mm. you know, from for for most of her adult life. That's a really good point, yeah. Yeah, who's who is really to say? Like some people, are, some people have interesting stories behind their names, and I I can absolutely imagine you know sitting across from somebody you know at a at a party and then being like, so fun thing about me, uh, my middle name is my dad's um, great grandmother's name, but also his ex wife's daughter who my dad thought was his daughter but turns out biologically was not and they got divorced and like that's a that's a really fascinating party story i'm not gonna front um i do think you should when your daughter is old enough to comprehend this you should definitely talk to her about it um because it's a story she should know um and that's something you should be aware of that's going to be your responsibility to do but as far as people online are concerned, fuck them. It blows over in six months. Whatever. Turn off your fucking Facebook and, like, take care of your kid. <laughs> Certainly you're not going to have a over. lot of time to be on it anyway, yeah. Yeah, like, social media is not real. Like, it's real, but it's not real. It is real in that it can legitimately give you a Skinner box endorphin effect. Or cause severe depression and anxiety. It is not real in that people are not presenting their true and authentic selves. Half of them, their interactions with you don't matter. They're not really... They are your community as much as you are interested in them being your community. So fuck it. Turn off your Facebook and your Twitter for a few months. It'll blow over. I honestly believe that there are bigger things in the world. Take care of your kid. Take care of your family. Maintain the distance from your ex. I think that's going to be very important. You don't owe your ex anything. You don't owe Karen anything. Handle your business, dude. And just stop worrying about fucking people messaging shit. It doesn't... You don't have to justify anything to them. Just... You know, highlight all the messages, delete, and close your account for a few months. You'll be fine. Yeah, you know, the the absolute most proactive, like, knee-jerk thing in a beneficial way I think you could do is look into what it would take to legally change a middle name. But beyond that, keep going on the straight and narrow lip. Nah. If you know what, if your daughter, if Freddie wants to change her middle name when it's time for her to change, when, when she's old enough to do that, that's going to be up to her. You just stick to your shit, man. Absolutely. 
So, yeah, that's love-hate relationship, and that has been our perfectly unqualified advice. If you would like to have us discuss any issue, um, you know, this was a little bit more of a ten- contentious one, I feel like. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we'll take the contentious ones. We'll take the more mundane ones. We'll take them off of Reddit like we did for this one. It came to us from our friends at relationship.txt. You don't have to send us your relationship questions. If you happen to see just something and you're like, huh, I wonder what my uh, my favorite podcast hosts would say if they could give their perfectly unqualified advice. You can do that by sending those questions into love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com. We promise we'll read them. Absolutely. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even tune in radio. Hey, mom. Um, my name is just some Greek shit that you and dad liked. <laughs> Thanks for not naming me after Roger Moore. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Um, check us out. Read our tweets about Jim Steinman and everything else that we talk about. Um, yep, li- follow us there to keep up with new episodes. The whole shebang. Listen to Total Eclipse of the Heart and get a Zippo and light it and sway it. Um you know, we talked about a couple of different movies on this episode. We talked about Beasts of No Nation and Iron Sky. Iron Sky is a very bad movie about space Nazis. And there will come a day I talk about it on my other show, Cult Fiction, where I watch sometimes very bad movies with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. You can find Cult Fiction the same place Alex said you can find this show. Or you can find me, Andy Boel, on Twitter at jovocop2113 that's right uh you can find me on uh twitter and instagram and tiktok i'm at a underscore x underscore r u i z and and you know what i haven't talked about this on the show um i have a chess.com account (laughs) fuck yeah my handle on chess.com is a x r u i z zero eight nine if you want to challenge me to a game of chess, I take all comers. I'm not that good. But here we are. <sighs> <laughs> I'm going to get like two chess.com requests after this episode drops. And I'm just going to be like, who the fuck is... Okay, that's fine. And it'll be worth it. Um, <laughs> thanks for listening, y'all. Uh, as ever, uh, please tell your enemies. Please tell your enemies.